Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. But on one side of the lake, it went off a waterfall into the continuing river. And you had to swim the opposite direction to a, a spot where you could scramble out. But it was sort of nerve wracking standing about to jump into this lake, knowing that half the or all of that water was eventually going to fall over a waterfall. But I guess the answer was we were able to swim, swim hard enough to stay away from that. Okay. You people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, here we go. Dark Zone, episode number 64. Today we have one of the OGs, the originals. Adrian Crane has raced all the eco-challenges. If you listen to the Dark Zone enough, you've heard about the eco-challenges. He does a great job talking about his stories, how he got his start, those early days. Stories drive the Dark Zone. Stories drive adventure racing. And we are delighted to welcome Adrian to the podcast. Quick technical note. It's a little scratchy sound-wise for the first 10 to 13 minutes. I know, I know. We fixed it. It got better. Hang in there. It's not too bad, but once I said it, you'll hear it. Once again, thanks for joining the Dark Zone. Hope you enjoy this episode. Note that this is part one for Adrian. The man is a story machine, and we will have him back for future episodes. Remember, folks, if you keep racing, we'll keep talking. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to thank VJ Shoes for sponsoring the show. VJs have made quite the splash on the AR scene thanks to their grippy soles, lightweight, and how quickly they drain water. If you're in the market for a new way to treat your feet right, check them out. Listeners of the Dark Zone can go to vjshoesusa.com slash the-dark-zone and enter the code DARKZONE20, all one word, for a $20 discount on your purchase. Thank you to VJ for supporting Adventure Racing, and that link will be in the show notes. I'd like to also mention the Dark Zone's charity partner, Send Athletics. We are proud to support their mission to empower young women through mountaineering-based leadership training and community service. All of our listeners are encouraged to visit ascendathletics.org to learn more about Ascend and their work in helping to develop leadership and resiliency in young women in Pakistan and Afghanistan through fitness, mental health, community service, and mountaineering. Please note that Ascend pays nothing for this mention. We just love the work that they do and are happy to spread the word. Be sure to check out their website for some upcoming activities that anyone can get involved in. And now sit back and relax and enjoy Adrian Crane. Today we are joined by one of the elder statesmen of the sport. Adrian Crane um, is a currently an ARWS referee, but he's been involved with the sport for decades. And I invited Adrian to come onto the show to talk about the early years of adventure racing, the Raid Galois, the early eco challenges, all of that. I know that Adrian has a lot of thoughts about adventure racing in general, but the goal of this episode of the podcast is to build sort of a history for all the listeners out there to get a sense of adventure racing's origins, where it started, what it was like in the good old days, as people kind of talk about. So Adrian's been very kind to come on and to sort of unspool his knowledge for us. Um, Adrian, 
Thanks for coming on the show. Start with a nice general question for us to get going here a little bit. How did you learn that adventure racing? What was your, how did you dip your toe into this world all the way back in the day? And feel free to use as many years as possible. So we have some context. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's really nice to be here and um, get a, get a chance to talk about adventure racing. So, uh, yeah, I've been involved in this sport, depending on how you define adventure racing for at least 30 years, if not 40. And, um, it does depend on exactly what you what you include as adventure racing. Um, currently, we're talking about a, a team sport um, at the longer end of the endurance spectrum. We're talking about multi-day, continuous um, team races with multiple disciplines. I think that's a fair uh, fair definition of current adventure racing. But uh, if we go back into the old old days. Um, and ask us uh, ourselves where this came from. Uh, we find quite a few different routes. My my actual introduction to what you might call the the modern version of adventure racing was at the, in 1995 when Mark Burnett um, took the the Ray Galois model and started off with Eco Challenge, the first one being held in Utah. Uh, at the time, I was a Mountaineer, uh, I think true mountaineers would call me a peak bagger, but that's uh, splitting hairs. Uh, <laughs> I was an orienteer, which turned out to be a really useful skill for adventure racing, since adventure racing, of course, involves navigation. And I was a long distance runner. And I've always thought that since uh, the majority or the or uh, very frequently the majority of the discipline in adventure racing is on your feet that long distance running is probably one of the better specialties to have in your um resume so as an orienteer long distance runner and mountaineer i was one of just a few people who were used to um very long events uh self-navigated and so when the eco challenge was announced for 1995 a fellow ultra-distance runner, Angelica Castaneda, got in touch with me and said, hey, Adrian, um, apparently you can navigate as well. Do you want to join our team? So I joined uh, joined Angelica and three other women to make up a team of five, one, one guy, five, uh, four women. The other teams were typically uh, three or four guys and one or two women. And uh, did Eco Challenge Utah, and it was a fabulous experience. Um, and uh, I think most people who've done an expedition adventure race know that their first expedition is often a fabulous experience. It's it is sort of life changing. You're really 110 percent immersed in what you're doing. No no thought of the outside world, and the only aim is to get to the finish line and when life is made that simple it's uh it's a pretty pretty raw and uh strong experience so um really i i have to thank angelica castaneda for getting me in on the ground floor of adventure racing and i've gone on from there so you, you clearly brought a natural skill set from those three experiences you mentioned and orienteering the 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 um the fact you had some climbing and the fact that you were, were a long distance runner those three things sort of came together sort of a venn diagram and gave you some access to the sport 
Now, that was in 1995. You mentioned the Raid Galois, which were races that took place overseas. For the listener who doesn't know about the Raid Galois, can you talk a bit about that? Because you've done four of them, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, really, the Raid Galois started off, uh, I think the first event was held in New Zealand in about 19, uh, 1989. And it was a multi-day event. I'm not quite sure uh, how much navigation there was. But uh, if I remember rightly, it included some horse riding, um, probably paddling, cycling, and trekking. And it was put on by um, a French group, and um, hence the name Ray Galois, I guess. And if you know the French culture, lately they've been, uh, you know, they seem to be a nation obsessed with adventure. They've got a great many... Um, adventure sports enthusiasts in France, and they, I don't know which came first, but uh, the Raid Galois was held in um, New Zealand, I believe, first, and then it went on to be held in um, New Caledonia, which is, a, I think, a French uh, territory in the South Pacific, uh, Borneo. Um, and I'd certainly heard of the Raid Galois prior to Eco Challenge coming up. Um, to his credit, Mark Burnett actually competed in a Raid Galois, I think in Madagascar. Um, and the Americans didn't manage to do terribly well initially in that, <clears throat> in the Raid Galois. Uh, and I've forgotten which year it was that, um, that, uh, really the basis of eco-internet got involved with the Ray Galois, whether it was prior to or after eco-challenge. But um, eco-internet with the likes of Ian Adamson um, came to Utah with some adventure race experience, and I think a couple of New Zealanders on their team, and uh, they, they pretty much blew the field away in Utah, and it took us uh, a year or two to... Uh, make some effort to catch up with them. Um, I think true to say Eco Internet um, as a team uh, pretty much stayed ahead of the pack for the, their duration. So what was that like that, that first, the first race in 1995, right? This was a, a brand new sport. It was, it was a brand new, not a new sport, a brand new activity. It was based on something they had seen overseas. Mark Burnett had done the one in Madagascar. He's actually talked about that, how he just did. He had such a hard time, but he loved the idea of it. He brought it here. Your memory going back to that start line, standing around, maps in your hands, the gear then, like, did you know what you were getting yourself into or was this just another adventure? And then what do you recall from that race that really struck you as being very challenging and difficult, even with your skill set? Well, the race, um, I, I clearly remember standing on the start line, partly because the first discipline involved horses. And horses are, are literally the, the wild card in uh, anything. So each team, I think, had one horse. We had two, might have been two horses. Um, and so a couple of the team members were elected to be the horse riders, and uh, the rest of us ran along beside. But in the commotion of the start, not only the competitors, but also the horses were really excited. I know one of our team members got kicked in the in the chest by a horse. Um, a lot of riders got thrown off or uh, bailed out pretty quickly. So initially it was chaos. 
some of the teams apparently spent hours searching for their stray horses before they could continue on down the course. Um, our team had a couple of couple of people who were actually, you know, had some horse riding experience. I had none. So luckily I didn't, I personally didn't have to get involved with the horses at that stage. Um, so yeah, we set off map in hand and I've, I've really got some very clear memories of the race. It was a, a fabulous experience for me. Um, I think right away I realized that luckily, provided you're not the weakest person on a team, an adventure racing doesn't have to be, you know, 100% pain. Um, when you when you do a solo sport, you push yourself as hard as you are able to, which if you're a competitive person is usually just a little too hard. Uh, when you're in a team sport, um, although you can help your competitors to some extent, uh, provided you're not the weakest person on the team, you get a bit of a break. And of course, as navigator, um, you you get some you get some buys because you have to spend time on the maps. Uh, so I actually thoroughly enjoyed that race. I had great company with four women, and uh, we did we did very well. We ended up seventh place overall out of about sixty teams, um, and. Yeah, it was spectacular. Um, you know, Mark Burnett and the Eco Challenge crew put up a, an amazing ropes course um, in that uh, Utah desert terrain. Uh, we had some some great bike sections. We had great trek sections, and we ended up with a um, yeah pretty gnarly rafting down the Green River. So. Uh, it was an epic event. Uh, we we did well. I enjoyed it, and uh, nobody got hurt. So I have very fond memories of that. How many days was the race back then? Um, I think it was probably a sort of four four day, five day winning time, and uh, the rest of the field came in over the next seven or eight or seven eight days. Now you mentioned that it was yourself and four female female teammates, five to a team. Today it's Correct. four people to a team. Was was that was that five racers or was that four racers and one person doing support? No, in uh, at that time, uh, Eco Challenge. I think the the Ray Galois was five person teams, and they continued to be five person teams for a long time after. Uh, Eco Challenge was five person teams for the first mm, probably two or three races, and then. Uh, switch down to four person teams which i have to say is a little more manageable from a, a sort of uh, a team perspective so so you have a a, a 30 plus year career in adventure racing we're going to talk about the other because you've done all the eco challenges if i'm correct right every single one that's been listed that's right yeah borneo yeah. british columbia and so this podcast is going to be 27 hours long but besides <laughs> that we'll, we'll come back to that later so on top of that, you also have done a lot of other races, Subaru High Tech, and you're a referee now, and you've seen a lot of things going on. When you think about an event race and you stand and you have the chance to watch it and to observe, what advice would you give to a team, regardless of the distance of the race or the time, what are the factors that you think a team really has to have in place in order to do well during that race? Okay, that's a great question because, yeah, you're right. I have the luxury now, and it really is a 
you know, a luxury to to watch a race unfold. Um, my advice to any up and coming team would be, you don't have to be an absolute expert in most of the disciplines. Now, navigation, it is really helpful to have somebody who's great at it. You don't have to be an incredibly good technical cyclist, but you want to be a very comfortable, competent cyclist. And if if the organizers do manage to put in a super gnarly piece of technical mountain biking, what it means is you just have to walk 100 yards right. pushing your bike instead of riding it. Um, you know, so you don't necessarily need to spend your time practicing jumping onto park benches with your bike. Um, but if you can if you can handle a single track and feel comfortable doing it, um, the same with the trekking. You know, um, I suppose if you were a you know high grade five rock climber, then obviously nothing in the trekking section would phase you. But the fact is, uh, provided you can scramble pretty well that's probably going to set you up just perfectly. And to, to my mind, what you want to be is, is feeling comfortable most of the time during an adventure race. What, what really saps people's energy and morale um, is to feel uncomfortable or worrying for long periods, and especially the white water, for instance. Right. Um, and so, so the point uh, there is the trick is you have to be steady on the course, right? That's what you're saying there. Yeah. You're saying it's not really about being the, the world's best mountain biker. It's not being the fastest trekker. It's being comfortable and just being steady along the course of the race. And you mentioned how the water sometimes freaks people out. Yeah, the the water can be pretty pretty frightening for somebody who's not used to it. And so the thing is, get yourself onto, onto some rivers with some class two and three rapids and just be super comfortable doing that. If you get thrown into a river where there's a, a class five that you're not comfortable with, okay, you lose 10 minutes portaging it, but you feel comfortable for the other 18 hours you're on the water. Um, so that, that's what I think is important. And the, the other great saying that works for me in adventure racing is it's not how fast you're going when you're going fast. It's how fast you're going when you're going slowly that's important. I've so, never heard that before. So, say, so it's not how fast you're going when you're fast is when you're going slowly. So say a bit about that because that's a new one. Yeah. Well, um, if everything is going great and you're on a flowing downhill on your mountain bike and it's a smooth, wide road, it really doesn't matter whether you're doing 28 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour. Um, the difference will be a, a few seconds, a few minutes by the bottom of that long hill. But if if it's the middle of the night and it's raining and you're pushing your bikes up a hill, if everybody's stopping every two minutes and, you know, pausing, you're going to be an hour, two hours behind the team that just, you know, sucked it up and pushed. And so, um, and the extreme example of that is, is the slowest you can go is when you're stopped. And so minimize your stops, try and make those transitions. You don't have to, you know, save seconds, but you certainly don't want to waste hours. And right. I see it all the time in well, uh, in races. You must see that, right? As the referee, you're standing in a TA, a team comes in and they, they put down their gear. They feel like the race is over and you want to start tapping your watch saying, get back oh, out yeah. there, folks. There's a lot of race left. Yeah. And, and you see that so clearly the front teams come in uh, eight minutes, 12 minutes, 16 minutes for a transition. 
and the back teams are taking two, three, four hours. If you know, right. yeah. Take, taking a nap, making a meal, get and they uh, they getting too too close to the fire, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. That, com- that comfort will get you every time. Don't go near the fire. Pillow rock, as Jonathan Neely calls it, right? You, you got to crash up on it. That's um, right. So now. You did that first eco challenge. You were in Utah. We've seen some video of that amazing that the ropes course up on the up on the mountains, going between yeah. those huge spires. Um, yeah. There was a scene I saw in one of the videos where bad weather was rolling in, a lightning storm was coming in, and you all had to scatter off that rock. Did you realize when you crossed the finish line in 1995 at that first eco challenge? Did you realize that you were onto something big that you would do this many of them, or did you think it was like a one and done? Um. You know, the interesting thing is that I've been I've been doing mountaineering trips, which, if you think about it, are often multi-day team events. Um, I've been doing, as you uh, you might know, things like the Alaska Wilderness Classic mm-hmm. and um, other other multi-day ultra events. So, actually, when I did my first eco challenge, it was it was a big deal. But it wasn't. Um, it didn't sort of change the course of my life. But certainly, once once I'd done an eco challenge, I thought to myself, if I ever get a chance to do something like this again, I'm you know I'm definitely on for it. And, uh, luckily, I got a lot more chances and did a lot more races and so, um, enjoyed every one. So th- there's a bit of a, a difference between a, a and you're, you're spot on by the way in the the idea that a, a high altitude mounting trip with various peoples is is similar to a team dynamic and, and like that. The race dynamic makes it a little bit interesting, right? Because when you're, when you're looking to climb a, a peak, right? Your Denali, wherever you're, where, wherever you're heading up to, you might be inside a time window when it comes to food and water it might be inside yeah. a weather window. So you're racing nature in that regard, but you're not really racing another team. Correct. How did, how did the, how did the, the transfer of the being used to being outdoors for long periods of time and doing strenuous activities now you had a layer of the race dynamic into that. What did you do for sleep? What did you do in the beginning? Because you had this other teams out there kind of in your mind you had to think about also. So how did that adjust? Well, I, I've always really enjoyed and thrived on the competitive aspects of activities. And, uh, you know, perhaps some people feel it's intimidating or or something, but I, I've always enjoyed it. Um, you know, the the thrill of seeing a team in the distance ahead and hoping you can catch them up kind of motivates me. The The fear of having a team behind that might be catching you is right. motivating. You so, see their headlamps in the distance, right? You look across the oh, range absolutely. and the headlamps are coming at you and they're getting yeah. closer. Yep. And I, I love the, uh, you know, the fun strategies involved in adventure racing, choosing different routes or trying to, trying to travel stealthily and not, not let teams know you're passing them. Um, so all, all of that I find is is wonderful the competitive aspects of of the event and it to me it's you know it is a big addition to what you might do if you were doing a a mountaineering trip but the you know i do find that in both mountaineering and in adventure racing you you really have a set of resources including your own energy that you're trying to manage for the best. Uh, there's obvious differences, but there's a lot of similarities between the two as well. So there were no, back in the day, you know, technology was different, right? You had much bigger lights, you had different clothing, you know, 
adventure racing today has really benefited from a lot of the technology changes that you see yeah. in mountaineering, right? The the the, yeah. the very, very warm or very light jackets, the lighting system, things like that. Yeah. In those early days, what was the biggest challenge that came across? Was it was it packing the food in? Was it having enough batteries for the lights? Was it staying warm? Like what was the what was the biggest change? When you look at the racing plane or racing back then, from a material perspective, what, what's the biggest difference? Well, I, I can think of two things immediately. The first is the lighting situation. Um, you know, we were in the early days when bike lights, decent bike lights would last on bright for about an hour or something. And you had to carry really the batteries. To, yeah, right? you really had to carry extra batteries and that, those weigh a lot. And, of course, the really decent lights were very expensive. So teams that, that you know, could afford them had a big advantage over those of us who were still using D-cells and junk like that. And it just made made night mountain biking uh, a lot trickier and probably more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, um, when you're on water sections, you know, a good dry suit these days is a fabulous piece of equipment. Uh, back in in the early days of eco, uh, I don't I don't know that anybody had dry suits to start with. And after a few events, uh, people started showing up with these really nice dry suits that were far beyond most people's budgets. And it's like, wow, that's a, that's a nice item to have. And the first time I did get a dry suit, I think on the raid in Argentina in about 1997, that was, uh, that was a fabulous feeling. You, you felt almost invincible on the river once you had a dry suit on. Yeah. We had friends of ours that they, uh, they raced in Alaska and they wore them the entire time. Not even when they were on the water. They're just, they were so yeah. warm and so comfortable. So you're right. So the technology is caught up over time. What about yeah. food? Like nowadays we have the freeze-dried meals, you know, we have all that available. Did you, was it, was a lot of real food? Like there were no, there were no goos, there were no energy, or was it, was it, was it Snickers and M&Ms and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Like what did you eat in those early days? Well, I'm, uh, I would have to say that probably nutrition is the, the, the aspect of adventure racing and, and uh, outdoor sports that I am the worst at. Uh, I like eating, <laughs> but I don't, I don't have too many, uh, you know, too many definitive ideas about what I should be eating. I think I've, I've marginally picked up after this many years some good tips and some good habits. Uh, I personally, you know, have eventually come to like goo and find it works very well for me as a sort of pick me up. But I do, I do find for myself, and I've got many examples. Uh, a real solid meal seems to be the uh, the thing that you know can turn my energy around after a few days. And so if I can get, uh, you know breakfast food, bacon and eggs, or uh, pancakes, or, you know, mashed potatoes with peas, something, some real solid food, my body's just happier to eat it. But um, that, that's always been the difference. Uh, I, I can, I can be cruising along for a couple of days feeling that my energy level is not as high as it should be. And I can eat all kinds of bars and um, scientific food. But if I can get a real meal, that's what will probably turn it around. And for uh, for the next day, I'm feeling great. So yeah, that's a very common thing we hear on the dark zone when when races when they when they recount their experience. They mentioned how while it's good to have that food in their pack that that gives them pure calories, 
coming yeah. across the ability to eat a, an entire meal. I had a team on uh, recorded yesterday. will probably come out before this comes out with um, a team now while they were down in Malacara. And they mentioned how they were living off what was in their pack. But when they came through a village, there was the, it was the actual food that really helped them get them uh, through. Absolutely. Yeah. We had a, we had a, uh, we were doing well in the raid, in the uh, eco challenge, Morocco and about 24 hours from the finish line, uh, things were getting tough and energy levels were down and we came across a village where they cooked us up a couple of eggs each and a pile of rice. And, you know, that just turned us around within 20 minutes. Everybody was feeling better and moving, moving faster. So. What, what a difference that makes. It's, you're right. So, so for the yeah. newer racer out there, if, if time allows, right, don't spend three hours in a TA. If time allows, try to get some real, real food and you keep rolling. Coming back into right. those early days, you know, I, I have my list here. We had Utah, then we had Maine, New England. Um, and then yeah. British Columbia was a particularly very, very popular race for the, the rugged nature of, of the experience. What is your memories of British Columbia? Just how hard was that race? And do you remember any specific challenges that popped up during it? Who'd you race with? And I don't want to pop quiz you, right? Because tons of races, tons of teammates. And, you know, sometimes I can't remember what I had for breakfast. But when you look back on British Columbia, what was that experience like for your team? Yeah, so um, British Columbia actually sort of played to some of my strengths because I was used to used to the mountain environments, and we went across the um, was it the Pendleton Ice Cap among other things. Uh, we had a very good race. We finished uh, second equal with a French team, and sadly, once again behind uh, Eco Internet or a, whatever, whatever exact name they used at that time. You know, it was Zico Internet. That's, you have, you're, you're correct. It was uh, Ian, yeah. Ian Anderson with John Howard. Those were two people on that team. Right. right. And um, I was racing with Roman Dial, who is an incredibly accomplished uh, outdoorsman from Alaska. Um, so there's Roman, myself, and Kathy Sasson-Smith, who was a you know, tremendous racer. Um Brief, briefly forgotten who the other members of, of our team were. And that was a, that was a really good race. Um, we, we led it for large parts. Uh, unfortunately, we, we dropped a second by the finish. Uh, one thing that I do remember is we came across the ice cap in pretty poor weather, um, which was probably an advantage because we had uh, Roman and myself who were used to those conditions. Um, and we spent probably 24 hours or so uh, going going through there in the rain. And when we got to the end, it, you know, we knew it was wet. Uh, once we got down below the snow line through the brush, you're always wet brushing against wet bushes and things. But we knew it was wet, but it wasn't until we got to a transition at the end of it and they asked how we'd, how we'd managed being out there during the storm, that we really realized how, how bad the weather actually was. It just felt like it was, you know, less than perfect. But actually, you know, if you were sitting inside or driving, it looked like a horrible rainstorm. But um, when we were out in it, it just seemed to be continuous drizzle and you were wet from the brush anyway. Uh, but, yeah, we, we survived that fine. And... Uh, Finished up pretty happily, cycling up to the finish. I wonder if that uh, the 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 rain perception you had out there was your brain's way of tricking you. 
that it couldn't possibly tell you how bad things were because you could never make it. So you kind of, you unintentionally lie to yourself. That was that here. It's just raining. We'll be fine. And you just keep rolling it, forward. It actually, it actually could have been certainly the fact that you, um, you know, you also get used to conditions. So if it just rains continuously after a few hours, you're like, okay, this is just normal, <laughs> normal precipitation or normal, uh, humidity. And th this is what it is. So, yeah. yeah. And, and if you really knew what it was, you couldn't believe it. You're, you're, you're spot on. So British Columbia, great race, you know, to your point, played to your strengths. You guys did really well there. And then now Mark Burnett, who's, who's not known for being ambitious. He goes from Utah to Maine slash New England. Then he goes to British Columbia and then he takes you down to Australia. Now yeah. I've seen video of that, that there was a Tyrolean traverse that they had to rig up at the last minute because when they scouted the course, you were going to trek across a riverbed. When they uh, went back before the race, they realized that um, crocodiles had moved into that riverbed and they had to hook up a, a Tyrolean traverse like right before the race started. Do you remember yeah. that? Absolutely. Now the, the thing that sticks in my mind about Australia is that um, at the pre-race briefings, we had the famous Australian uh, zoologist giving us the briefing about their snakes. Unfortunately, he's, he's the guy that died a few years later by uh, while he was swimming with manta rays, I think. But was, uh, did, uh, yes, yes, yes. Steve Irwin. Yeah. Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin. He was an absolutely memorable performance at the pre-race briefing explaining uh, in very humorous terms all of the animals we were going to encounter <laughs> <laughs> that were going to cause us problems. So we we all memorized the uh, three most poisonous snakes in the world and were very careful not to stand on piles of, of leaves. And uh, uh, then there were the crocodiles that we were going to encounter. And those, I think, were what, caused that root change and um the yeah the tyrolean was um spectacular and at the end of the tyrolean across it may have been the howard river I'm, i can't remember quite uh there was a wonderful spot where you had to jump 20 feet into a, a small lake but on one side of the lake it went off a waterfall into the continuing river and you had to swim the opposite direction to a, a spot where you could scramble out. But it was sort of nerve-wracking standing about to jump into this lake, knowing that half the or all of that water was eventually going to fall over a waterfall. But I guess the answer was we were able to swim swim hard enough to stay away from that. And, th and that could have included you going over the waterfall, right? And so that oh, was it, a fairly it challenge. It could absolutely, yeah. And then... Uh, that did include uh, a bit of horse riding, but that they were they were very pleasant horses from what I remember. So that was um, I eventually doing eco challenges. I did take up some horse riding and got uh, gotcha. reasonably competent. But I remember Australia is actually a pleasant horse ride. Well, it's funny because we're going to get to Morocco in a second. We'll hold on to Morocco, but the Australia is famous for the story that Team Eastwind they had the teammate who was injured and they carried yeah. her down off the mountain. And what an yeah. amazing and, and Eastwind is just a legendary race. And they're they're on the they're on the Mount Rushmore of Dark Zone guests. I uh, want to get on here. They're what a Tanaka. That story would be amazing. Um yeah. and so if you're out there, my friends in Japan, come on to Dark Zone. We'd love to have you. I also want to mention that I, I wish that somebody in charge of the copyright for all the eco challenges would somehow get their act together and drop them all on streaming platforms because they're fascinating to watch. 
They're 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 done so well, and they're kind of in the ether right now. No one knows where they are. Yeah, Australia, happy horses, great experience. But then they took you to Morocco, and what was that start like? Well, I would almost say Morocco Eco Challenge was my most favorite race. Um, once again, we did pretty well. Came in fourth place eventually. Led led the race at points during it. Um, this race, unfortunately, was held either intentionally or unintentionally at the same time as uh, the raid Galois in Ecuador, and so it sort of split the split the teams, and several of the top teams uh, ended up going to the raid Galois instead of Eco. Uh, but raid Morocco was a fabulous race. Um, you probably mentioned the start because we started off with a camel riding section, which was kind of hilarious because none of the racers actually knew how to get a camel to go left, right, or forward. Uh, so we relied on the locals to, to cluck and kick and whip the camels. Um, and, you know, the old 100, 100 yards rule that, of course, I as a referee have to keep watching for your teammates are meant to stay close. Well, nobody could control their camels well enough to stay anywhere near anybody else on the team. So and this is the beginning of the race. This is like, yeah, yeah. like everybody, get on your, get on your camel, go get into them. a free-for-all. Um, but anyway, huge crowd of camels running down the beach. On this race, we, we were at this point in four-person teams, and I raced with Tony and Valerie Molina from L.A. area. And uh, it was myself and my brother, Richard, who's from the UK. So the four of us raced. Um, it was really a very strong team, as I say. When we got to the section, section that was horse riding, um, that was actually the first real oasis that Eco Challenge came up with. And we arrived at this TA expecting the usual dirt lot with a pile of boxes but we found bedouin tents set up with with beautiful carpets and drapes on the sides and they invited us in and basically we got a buffet and somewhere to lounge and i lay in the tent looking at the new set of maps uh we'd just been handed and trying to figure out our route while the others went out and got things organized and uh, they they finally came back in and I'm like, okay, guys, I've got the maps ready to go. What are we, you know, we're we're on horses next, I understand. And they're like, yeah, and we've got the we've got the four horses we're using. And I go out there and there's three nice little horses that they've each chosen for themselves. <laughs> and they produce this huge Arabian stallion for me to ride. It's like a building. It's and, like, like uh, on top of a tractor trailer. <laughs> yeah, it really it, it was huge and it was very spirited and uh took took several tries to even get on the back of this thing and once i got on the back it was rearing and whatever and i'm like we better go quick and try and get some some of the energy out of this horse well i didn't dare get off this horse and it eventually uh luckily i i stayed on it for the vast majority of the the section I finally got thrown off about three miles, not, not really thrown off, but I sort of bailed about three miles from the end. And 
I just couldn't get back on it. So I actually ran the last three miles leading this horse in. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's... I like, that's how your more... te- I like how your teammates were like, we'll take the three nice ones. We'll give exactly. that one to Adrian. <laughs> exactly. And it's like somebody had said they were they were good at horse riding and it certainly wasn't me, but... Well, that yeah. was also, that was the race too. And once again, to reference the video, that uh, after you had done the camel, you then had to do co-steering. Right. And the teams yeah. that were in the back got caught in the tide. Right. Yeah. So what was a beach yeah. run became a, a rock stone with a lot of teams and then attempting to get the boats back off the water because you were down the African coast. The the swells bringing those boats in were, were tough. It was cold. The waves were big. It was getting dark for a lot of teams. It felt like it was a really, a really kind of a wild race as eco challenges go. It, it was. And that um, that kayak down the North African coast. Yeah, that was that was huge. There were boats being, you know, a long way out, out to sea. Um, you had to stay well away from the, the coast to keep away from the breakers. And yet it was, you really didn't want to get too far out in those conditions. Um, and then at the points where we did have to bring the boats in, there wasn't any easy landing. You had to surf in on the breakers. And I think 99% of all the boats <laughs> capsized in, in the process of doing that. Yeah. And then trying um, to get back out was even harder because that was, a, that was a, a TA. You had to switch out well, your passport and you had, to go, you had to go back out through the breakers. The, by the time we arrived, um, we got the message that the, the four of us in, we had two two-person kayaks, ocean kayaks out there. Uh, we were, we dropped off a one of one of the team who had to swim through the breakers, check in at the TA, and then swim back out, and then we had to pick them up because you couldn't get the uh, you couldn't get the boats back out through the surf at that point. And, and this was day one. And that was day one, yeah, um, wow. possibly day two. Because we also had a like a, a dark oh, that's right. zone. There was a dark season. zone, that night, and you had to be in by that. If you weren't off the, by that dark zone, you were going to get. Right. And back then, now, correct me on this. Nowadays, we have the short course option. Nowadays, we have the option in which teams. Am I correct that back in the day, if you missed a, a cutoff or a dark zone, you were out of the race? Yeah, pretty much. Um, they were certainly organized as continuous routes. Uh, basically, yeah, there were no short short course options. And I think that the organizers of both the Raid Galois and Eco Challenge were, were of the mind that if you if you couldn't keep up, you you eventually dropped. Yeah. yeah. So and that and that appears to be in in today's in, in a lot of races today, and and not that it's it's in every single race. It sounds like a lot of the races today recognize that the teams train a lot, they travel a distance, it costs a lot of money, and they don't want to have a team go all that way. And on day one, miss a cutoff, and all of a sudden their race is over, and they have four days where they're they thought to be on the course. So to their credit, race directors. Are, are a little more thoughtful about the racer experience the entire time. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And um, often we don't have the luxury of being able to put on a race that's a, a true point to point. So there are often our loops that make a, a short course option pretty viable. Um, plus, you know, the the pace and speed of the lead teams is so good that there's very few people who really could keep up with them. Right. Back in back in the early days, it was a little more of an equal playing field because no, nobody had quite figured out the, the uh, absolute best way to do these things, and um, maybe there was a bit more parity. 
So what was that in that? And so to that question, that's a good thing you bring up. In the beginning, there was parity, right? Because the the, the lot of you who had similar skill sets were, were in this newer sport and starting it off by yourselves. And then eventually some teams began to pull away over time. What was the difference maker for those teams? What enabled the teams that were dominant to be dominant? Was it their nutrition, their speed, their teamwork, their fitness? Was it a variety of factors? What do you think really began to separate teams in the beginning? Um, I'd say it's probably that the the handful of really serious teams, first of all, they did, um, they probably did more than one race a year. Uh, so they just had more experience. Secondly, they they intentionally put their teams together for for performance rather than just being a group of friends or a group of people who'd climbed or run or paddled together. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and if they were successful, then they'd have the opportunity to to do more races together. And that, I think, was a sort of snowball that meant some, some teams progressed much faster than a lot of other teams. And, and you ended up with several several really good teams who were able to push the pace and well, sort of I mean, advance the sport. Yeah, well, so, well, that's what happened, right? I mean, these teams, God bless them, right? They had the ability, they had the time, they had the resources, and they focused on their training, you know, not around the clock. Very rarely is there a full-time adventure race. We all have day jobs that we do. Right. But some people have more jobs than others allow for training. And yeah. to your point, when those teams began to get faster and better, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So now yeah. all of a sudden... Their, their gear changed, their nutrition changed, their food changes, and also it kind of goes through the entire sport and yeah. everybody just gets a little bit faster along the way. Um, Absolutely. And the, the rest of the field is looking at the gear that the top teams are using and realizing, oh, I, I don't need all this heavy stuff. I can, right. I can really minimize, I can use some scientific foods, I can use training methods. Yeah. Well, did you find that over time? Like when you look at, so so say you go, think about Utah all the way through Morocco, right? We're going to get to Argentina in a second. You go from Utah to Morocco, it's your fifth or sixth race, right? You're, how did your gear selection change? Aside from the aside from the weather and the, that, did you were just carrying less items that you need? Did you carry less shoes? Like how did your approach change over those five eco challenges? Well, actually, I don't believe my approach changed too much because one of the things that I'd been doing prior to even Eco Challenge Utah, when adventure racing really started, prior to that, I'd realized that for my climbing trips and hiking trips, weight was incredibly important. And in fact, it may have been Roman Dial when I was on an adventure at one of the Alaska Wilderness Classics who coined the phrase, uh, a pound in your pack is a mile less each day. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'd got to the point where I would snip off the labels of my clothing and things like that to, you know, the classic cut your toothbrush in half right. uh, just to save weight if you carried a toothbrush, which I probably didn't bother doing on an adventure race. Right, um, right, right. So I was very, very aware of um, weight which is an incredibly important part of the gear choice. Uh, probably part of what I had to do was persuade my teammates how important that was. Um, my problem was, maybe it's my Scottish background, but I was always a little reluctant to spend too much money on gear. So I never had the <laughs> highest quality highest quality mountain bike or, um, you know, latest in, in hiking shoes or running shoes so 
I, I was probably a little behind the curve in some of those gear choices. Um, but, but, but clearly it wasn't affecting you because you're, because fitness makes up for a lot. Right. And I, and I'm all about the idea of saving weight and you're, you're spot on there, but I did a lot of bicycle racing at one point, right? A lot of criterium racing, a lot of, a lot of stage yeah. racing. And I would look down on the start line and it would be a guy who would have the lightest, most expensive $15,000 racing bike and an extra 15 pounds around the stomach. Yeah, like if, yeah. if you really want to save weight, the best place to save weight is what's hanging on your body as opposed to what's oh, in your absolutely. absolutely. But, but to your point, with your with your background, you're, you're, you're lean now, so therefore you are lean then. Um, yeah. So I think you're right that your mountaineering experience carried very nicely into the gear selection. So, so Morocco is Morocco, great race, Atlas Mountains, uh, well-received, and then you went to Argentina. What yeah. was that like? That was in 1999 was Argentina. Right, so... The 1999 uh, Eco Challenge Argentina was in the same area as I think it was 1996 Ray Galois, mm -hmm. and it was it was quite strange um, in a couple of locations where I recognised areas of the the route, and it was almost déjà vu, and it it almost it it certainly gave me some peace of mind because I almost felt like, oh, I, I know this terrain, I know this country. But I think that was the race where um, I'm pretty sure that was the race where I used a dry suit for the first time. And I clearly remember from the Argentina, sorry, from the Raid Galois version of the Argentina uh, raid, the water was terribly cold and it was some of the paddling sections were pretty miserable. Um, using the wetsuit was wonderful, and I was in that race with, uh, I think it was definitely Tony Molina, probably Valerie again, and Tom Possett. Tom Possett was an, an incredibly accomplished ultra runner, um, but we, we paddled down some of the rivers there, uh, capsized several times, but just enjoyed the heck out of it because wearing these these new dry suits yeah. it Who was cares? just you were just, just like, invincible we're, just, yeah. we're fine right yeah pop out of the water yeah. get back in and keep paddling yeah. so i i do remember that the paddling sections all of a sudden were just a lot of fun um i think that was the race that got delayed by uh, a big snowstorm in the mountains and so we actually hadn't enforced about it 18 hours sitting in a small tent with a mountain guide waiting for the weather to clear enough for the race to be able to continue and um, I, th I think actually that delayed us enough that we we didn't quite get over the mountains before the snow came. So we sort of got separated from the front group of eight teams and ended up somewhere around the just outside the top ten by the finish. Did you have any sense of um, back then there was really no tracking technology? Right. The teams would go out and the TAs would probably radio in. Right. They would walkie talkies and they radio. They, they would let, you know, Mark Burnett and the team know, oh, yeah. you know, this team came in, that team came in. Did you have any sense of where other teams were on the course? Whatever you picked up on in the TAs. Right. And you'd get it. Would you end up like team so and so is X amount of hours ahead of you? Or would you just be out there just racing as fast as you can? And it is what it is. Um, I think the. You know, we were just racing out there with a, a minimum of information. I I think sometimes they'd let us look at a check-in sheet. Sometimes they wouldn't. Uh, but, but So we didn't have much clue. The, the usual thing was you'd come to a transition, and because the transitions tended to take a lot longer than the, the 10 or 15 minutes that teams manage it now, 
um, you'd probably see the teams ahead of you still in transition. And before you left, the teams behind you would start arriving. So you had some clue, but I think the, the question about tracking, it's not so much a change for the teams because of course the teams can't look at the tracking now anyway, while they're on the course, but, uh, it does, you know, it does make me smile and shake my head to think that, you know, we had these, these races were going on with teams scattered all over the countryside. And most of the time, no one really had any clue where they were or yeah. what their situation they, they would just was. Come, they would come walking out of the woods, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like they left 18 hours ago, they were yeah. going west, and now you're in a TA and you're like, well, when they get here, they get here. And exactly. nowadays we have like the tracking and we know exactly where they are. And we, we there's a yeah. whole industry around dot watching. Yeah. We, you know, we talk about, but back then it was just wild sort of like, not unlike Ram, the race across America, yeah. where back before they had trackers, you would, people would call from a phone booth. Hi, yeah. I'm in, I'm in Iowa. I'm in Dubuque. Right. Hang the phone yeah. up and keep riding their bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the technology has changed a lot and it's, um, yeah, it's absolutely made dot watching possible, but um, there, there was a certain, uh, certain fun to knowing that you were, you were out in the boonies there and you really were on your own. You're, and that was, and you were, there was no button to press. They weren't coming for you, right? No. There was no, no helicopter and you were going to figure it out. So on that, on that note, you know, and, and the, there's a really good, I'm going to make a judgment call right now is we're going to bring you back on again. We're not going to talk about the rest of the eco challenges because we're going to go for two hours. So you're going to be a future guest. So get All used right. to it. This is great. So, but before we begin to sort of wrap things up here, I, I am curious about like, you know, you're, you're Scottish and, you know, the, the Scots are a stoic people and they never really talk about when it was hard and when it was bad, right? Your, your arm could be hanging off and you could be covered in poison ivy and you're like, ah, it was a rough day on the course. Right. And those, those early eco challenge days, when did it just get really hard? Like, when do you remember just being like, whether the sleep or an injury or food, or was it never like that for you? Um, well, first of all, I, I'm not quite Scottish. I'm from the very North of England okay. so they, to be fair to the Scots. I'd better admit I'm actually English. Yeah. yeah we don't, um, we don't want to have an international incident. So oh, good job. Right. Very nice. But I did have, you know, my wife always says, well, it's easy for you. You only remember the good stuff and you forget the bad stuff, but really I never, um, I certainly don't think back and remember any any desperately horrible situations in those days. I, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And as I say, the most important thing is I, I was lucky enough never to be, or very rarely to be the weakest one on the team. Right. And as long as you're not the weakest, and uh, I was always the navigator. So I always had the maps to distract me and, you know, um, let me spend some time looking at maps rather than, uh, you know, just pushing on. So I, I always, uh, you know, typically enjoyed the heck out of those races. I must say, I'm sure there were some times when I had pretty sore feet and I was halfway right. up a long hill thinking to myself, is this ever going to end? But uh, looking back on it now, I my selective memory does a great job and I, I just enjoyed the experiences and the people I was out there with and had a great time. And probably that, yeah, and probably that, the rivers, I'm, you know, I'm more of a land person than a river person. So I may have had some white knuckle times on the rivers or big lakes or, or oceans and, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely some ocean 
ocean stories I can tell you. <laughs> well, we, we've had that. So it's funny you bring that up, right? Because the uh, very often when people talk about the scariest moments during adventure racing, they, they don't mention that the cycling too much, right? Because for the most part, the cycling is never really super duper technical. And if it is, you right. get off your bike and you walk down. People talk about, and not really much the rapids, they talk about being out on the ocean or a huge body of water and yeah. having nothing around them. That's a very, very common thing that people talk about is what causes them the most anxiety is just being out there on your own, no yeah. land anywhere. And just because that that's, a, it's amazing how you, that almost feels claustrophobic yeah. when you're out in the open like that. I, I must say, I would, I would have to say that my ocean paddling experiences are probably the, some of the, well, they are the gnarliest parts that, that I've, I remember from those races, probably the most, in absolute terms, the most dangerous. And the very long ocean paddling in uh, Eco Challenge New England from Martha's Vineyard down to Rhode Island, that was, uh, that was an epic. I, plus, we were all sleep deprived, so we were getting amazing deja vu experiences. Um, I think we were towing Marshall Ulrich, who was in the single boat of a five five person team, and um, <laughs> I think I don't, uh, there were some strange experiences. Yeah. Well, when you're and when you're first off, paddling by itself is a. Uh, if if you love paddling, people have to go talk to a doctor, right? Because paddling by itself is the most boring activity in the world. And if you're if you're sleep deprived and you're making that same motion, that rhythmic motion. It yeah. just, we were, we were in Scotland racing with, you know, near the end of an iTerra race, fantastic race. We're on these, these locks, we're on these, these channels and mm -hmm. we're all sleeping. Like we're, like we're in the boat and we're bumping up against the shoreline because only one of us, Shari could stay awake that the three men oh. were destroyed, you know, and uh, you're, you're right about that. I do want to bring this up too, because I saw this and we'll talk more about this when we get to, to Borneo, when we get you back on the show, um, the, the, the caving in Borneo. Oh yeah. Now, yeah. So was Borneo the first time that you came across caves as part of Eco Challenge, or were there caves in other versions? And um, on, on top of that, how do you deal with caving? How do you how do you do okay with that? I think there had been some. I, I can't believe we hadn't done some kind of caves before. I, I'd actually done a bit of caving previously, anyway. Um, I've never never really had a problem with being claustrophobic or or in a cave. They're kind of, they're kind of neat and interesting. So. I enjoyed the heck out of the certainly the Borneo caves, which I remember clearly. But one of the most wonderful things about caving is when you come back to the surface or you get out of them, and suddenly you have a breeze again and a cool, crisp air. And we we came out of the Borneo caves, very high, like 500 feet high up on a cliff, and you could see some lights glittering off in the distance on the coast and. It was just dawn and the, the cold air hit you. And it was like, uh, you know, just fantastic to be alive. It was wonderful. Uh, um, well, so, it's, yeah. it's, it's ironic. The best part about caving is when it ends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the best part about a lot of things. Actually. That's true, right? Exactly. <laughs> this thing is over. We're good to go. Especially just um, put, we put ourselves in. Exactly. And, you know, I, I always remind myself, too, when, when people, if they, they bring up the idea that this is hard and, hard and difficult, you know, you signed up for it. Right. Yeah. You, we all chose to fly to some place and go and do it. And whether it be a six hour race, 12 hour race, five day race, you're a volunteer. Right. You've lost the right to complain about it. You yeah. know, um, 
So we're, we're going to bring you back for another episode because there's so many, so many more stories coming out of the Future Eco Challenges and all your other stuff you've done too. I asked him about Wilton's challenge and you're, you're running across the Himalayas. 101 days, I think you ran, right? You raised $100,000. Yeah. So yeah. We'll, we'll save all that for the future. Um, cool. what, what I do want to close out here is the... Um, I, I always like to, to always bring this back to the new eraser. And I always like to give, give the guest a chance to sort of finish off the show by giving them the best advice that you wish you had in the beginning. What did you wish you knew when you started adventure racing that you want to give to the new eraser? Well, I, I think my best piece of advice is the best way to see if you can, the, the best way to do something is to try it. So don't, don't sit back and say, I have to learn these 10 different skills before I can possibly try a race. Just sign up for the race, go for it. You know, if you're even thinking of doing it, you've obviously had some exposure to these sports. Just, just get out there. That's the quick way to find out what's really involved. Um, the organizers, the other races, the volunteers will look after you. You'll have a great experience anyway. If you make it to the finish line, fantastic. If you don't make it to the finish line, you'll have learned a hell of a lot more in those few days than you could have learned staying at home trying to prepare. So just give it a go. Excellent. Great way to close out episode one of Adrian Crane. Uh, part one, I should say, of being on the dark zone. Thank you, Adrian, for being here. We'll get you back on. and We have a lot more to talk about. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. Adrian Crane and all his storytelling goodness. He listed a lot of people on that episode. I'm going to start tracking them down. Built some of an oral history about adventure racing. Come here. Hear the stories. Go out. Race. Great stuff. Thanks again to Adrian for being here. He's a good sport and a fun guest. Stay tuned for more. Special thanks to our sponsor, VJ Shoes, USA.com slash the dash dark dash zone. Check out VJ Shoes for their lightweight and sticky and grippy and wonderfully drainy shoes. Enter code DARKZONE20, all one word, DARKZONE2020, for a $20 discount on your purchase. And thank you again to our charity partner, Send Athletics, for all that you bring to young women in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We are proud to support your mission of developing leadership and community service in that part of the world. Listeners, thanks for being here. You have a lot of choice in how you spend your time, and we're grateful that you choose to spend it with The Dark Zone. To help us out, go like our Facebook page and head over to your platform of choice and rate, click, and like. Their algorithm likes that when people pay attention to podcasts. Spread the word. Thanks for being here, and good luck racing, and have fun training. I was toting my pack along the dusty Winnemucca Road. When along came a semi with a high-end canvas-covered load If you're going to win a muckamac with me, you can ride And so I climbed into the cab and then I settled down inside He asked me if I'd seen a road with so much dust and sand And I said, listen, I've traveled every road in this here land I've been everywhere, man, I've been everywhere, man Across the deserts, bear man, I breathe the mountain air, man. I travel, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere.
I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tocopilla, Barranquilla, and Padilla. I'm a killer. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Boston, Charleston, Dayton, Louisiana, Washington, Houston, Kingston, Texas, County, Monterey, Faraday, Santa Fe, Tallapoosa, Glen Rock, Black Rock, Little Rock, Oskaloosa, Tennessee, Tennessee, Chicopee, Spirit Lake, Grand Lake, Devil's Lake, Crater Lake, the Beach Lake. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Louisville, Nashville, Knoxville, Lombabaca, Shepherdville, Jacksonville, Waterville, Costa Rica, Pittsfield, Springfield, Bakersfield, Shreveport, Hackensack, Cadillac, Fond du Lac, Davenport, Idaho, Jellicoe, Argentina, Diamantina, Pasadena, Catalina, Sea, Guadamina. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Pittsburgh, Parkersburg, Gravelburg, Colorado, Ellensburg, Rexburg, Vicksburg, Eldorado, Laramore, Atmore, Havistar, Chattanooga, Chaska, Nebraska, Alaska, Opelika, Baraboo, Waterloo, Kalamazoo, Kansas City, Sioux City, Cedar City, Dodge City, what a pity. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been everywhere.